The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. How is your work life going? Business? Home? Social? How about your health? Could you make some changes? Of course you could, but how and where to start? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. In this program, we'll help you identify and make the changes in your life that need to be made. And by doing so, increase your potential for success. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi. I'd like to invite you to connect with a situation in which your outcomes might have been very different if you were better equipped to manage the pressure you experienced at that time. Maybe the situation involved a business deal, competitive sports, or a sales pitch. Research on stress resilience reveals the importance of viewing your fight or flight response as a helpful guide to cultivating courage. When you face your fears and routinely learn to master a skill or an experience you feel insecure about, your brain's actually able to develop new neural pathways to help you better manage those stressful situations. This episode will teach you how you can override aspects of your biology that cause anxiety and worry so you're not ruled by fight or flight reactions. You'll learn how to develop a lean, agile mindset, which my guest Renita Calhoun refers to as a mental six-pack. Renita is an expert in leadership, performance, and resilience coaching. She trains entrepreneur CEOs and their teams and Navy SEAL candidates to reach the top of their game through her Step Up Your Game performance system, which teaches mental toughness skills that are essential to optimal performance under pressure. Renita, welcome to the show. Thank you, Hamda. So happy to be here. I'm excited to have you here. It's such an important skill set that you're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. And I know that the frame of reference you have has been cultivated over many years in that your work is informed by your experiences as a Juilliard-trained pianist and a martial arts black belt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's right. So I would guess that you've learned a few things about mental toughness through those experiences. Lots of trial and error. I am curious to hear, though, it's so interesting because being gravitated to the very critical work that you do and having this foundation that you have in that training as a, as a Juilliard pianist and in martial arts, what would you say f- in those experiences really helped you to cultivate mental toughness? Mm, that's a good, good question. So I started uh, playing the piano at the age of five. And um, soon I was practicing hours a day, entering competitions around the country and dreaming of coming to the Juilliard School here in New York. And um, when I got to high school, I um, decided I wanted to be on the tennis team because I had been such a nerd all of my life, always practicing. So my mom said, you can be on the tennis team, but it can't affect your music. 
So I created this very rigorous uh, regime for myself, just kind of naturally, because I really wanted to be on the tennis team. So I'd wake up in the morning, I'd practice, you know, two hours before school. I'd go to school, after school, I'd train with the tennis team, come back home, uh, practice a couple more hours, and then do my homework. And uh, my junior year of high school was this year of intense focus, but flow. I was in the flow. I was totally immersed in what I was doing, and I was always clear on what I needed to be doing. And uh, by the end of the year, I had um, accomplished all the credits I needed to graduate early. (laughs) I had auditioned for Juilliard and gotten accepted, and I was number one on the tennis team. So the uh, training that I went through to develop the focus and the discipline showed me the power of mental toughness or mental training. Uh, So that was very instrumental in um, just establishing what I call mental muscles that could serve me in any environment. So you you showed yourself what you could do. Yeah. And it seems at the same time that you had a really strong drive and a clear sense of what you felt really driven about. Mm -hmm. I definitely had a strong why. Yeah, I was very motivated to do all those three things. Is that part of the training that you offer? Do you help people to connect with their own why? Or do you already tend to work with people who are very connected to their why? I tend to work with people who already have a strong why. They may not have completely articulated it, um, but they generally have a drive. I don't try to convince people to have a goal, to set goals. I tend to work with people who already have strong goals. So it seems as though that's really a foundational piece, though. Absolutely. Absolutely. You need to know the general direction that you want to go and why you want to go that direction. So if we look into your Step Up Your Game performance system, I love that title, which I'm aware has three steps. So I just want to recap the three steps and maybe if we can delve into the first one. Okay. And please correct me if, if need be. So the first step is overriding your biology to come out of a repeated fight or flight cycle. Mm-hmm. And the second step is burning mental fat, otherwise known as the unproductive thinking that can keep you stagnant, really, and in more of a survival mode. And finally, the third step, flexing your mental muscles, which is about building focus and resilience. Right. So what more can you say about the first step, overriding your biology? Yeah. And what I'd like to say now is mastering your biology, because we are wired in certain ways so that we can't not do, but I think if we can understand why we're doing certain things, then we don't let that be the driver. We have the ability to make different choices. So, you know, our, our ancestors were ruled by fight or flight. They had to be reacting to situations. They didn't really have time to think. They also didn't have, they had a much smaller brain, right? So in the last, um, you know, thousands of years, relatively recent in human history, we have this frontal cortex now that allows us to have rational, analytical thinking. And we also don't really have, at least in the Western world, many physical threats to our, to our survival on a daily basis. So there's a body of science now, um, social neuroscience, where they see that we react to threats in our social environment in the exact same way that we react to physical threats. So what that means is we're going through our day 
and we are constantly having fight or flight triggers that are is putting our body through the same you know stress stressful situation that we would if we felt like our physical uh, safety was in in threat um but because it's a social threat it's not it's not really a threat to our survival so what i talk about is how to recognize what those those social triggers are and they come from you know have did i screw up um am i safe here with the with these people um do i have control over my situation these are things these are triggers that happen every single day in in our personal and professional environment so just understanding what those triggers are first of all we can just become more aware of them and then when they happen we can see that we don't have to react we can actually make a different choice so two of the main populations that you work with are navy seals right and also entrepreneur executives mm-hmm. So it's interesting going through this logical process of really helping people to see that they can make a different choice in mm-hmm. how they react. I'm curious about some of the common triggers that you see in, let's say, if we start with CEO executives. So it, it all comes down to interpersonal relationships. Um, so I was talking to a, a CEO founder the other day who Um, you know, he saw himself as startup guy. He had started the company with two or three people, but now it's grown to 40 people. And he says that he notices when he walks into the room that some of the more junior employees treat him like uh, he knows everything, that he's got this high status. And so there are all kinds of triggers happening there. First of all, the junior person is being triggered by their boss walking in the founder is walk is being triggered because he's like why do i not feel like i'm part of the the tribe anymore why do i feel like i'm separate i'm being treated differently so that's that's just one example of how there are these very subtle triggers going on um you know there could be something much more obvious like running out of money how am i going to pay payroll uh how am i going to get funding or if a company is going going public right all the 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 um perception in the public eye that might be going on in terms of their valuation or you know what the value of their company is doing all those kinds of things there's just a myriad of of ways that um they could be triggered uh in fight or flight and how would you work with them in a situation like that i know we're going to go into the other steps mm-hmm. in segments 2 and 3 but just in terms of this first part that we're talking about is being able to work through that fight or flight reaction into a different type of choice. Yes, so I I like to give them a map. I because I think a lot of um performance is about feeling a sense of control. And it's not that you actually have control over the situation, it's just the sense that you've prepared, you've anticipated certain situations and you feel like you can handle whatever comes up. So one simple tool I'll give um a client who's um got a particular situation coming up whether it's a negotiation or um a big presentation is just to map out what uh some of the triggers might be in terms of um you know there David Rock I should I should mention David Rock at the Neuro Leadership Institute has come up with this framework of five triggers so one of them would be status for example how might uh your status be lowered or raised in a certain certain situation um 
relatedness. You know, how, how might I be part, seen as part of the tribe or not part of the tribe? And just to map that out for yourself to see how might I be triggered in this situation and also the other people in the group, how might they be triggered? And now when those things happen, you're not taken off guard, you've actually anticipated them. And now you have a chance to respond differently than, and instead of just reacting. It seems also you're gaining a lot of insight that hopefully in and of itself comes the fight or flight reaction. Like as an example, when I think status, I think in so many situations, people feel like they're being minimized. Mm. So it's very important to have the insight that someone in a leadership role can actually feel like they're being raised to a place where they feel separate. Mm-hmm from the team and having that awareness that that in of itself is not necessarily an experience that feels positive and affirming and good to that person. And just understand, because he might be reacting in a way that puts him even further away from the team instead of realizing why he does feel that way and then taking an action that actually gets him the result that he wants. That's an interesting point. So that's more of a reactive response. Uh Uh-huh. If you feel as though people are treating you differently, then maybe a natural response would be to engage in behavior that separates you from others. Yes. And often what I tell clients is just simply acknowledge, you know, just to say, you know what, I feel like I'm not part of the group here. or I feel like you guys are, are, you know, looking up to me, putting me on too much of a pedestal, right? I'm the CEO, but still we're, we're upon the same team. Just acknowledge the situation, can really go a long way to to calming everyone's fight-or-flight triggers. So taking this a step further, your point about encouraging people to really identify what their triggers are, and you mentioned the work of David Rock, Mm -hmm. who identified five very common triggers Mm -hmm. that you can work with, and then really looking at the scenario from a broader perspective to see not just how you're reacting, how also other people are reacting so that you can feel like you're gaining control of the situation and you can design a different response for yourself and speak directly about what's going on to the people involved. Exactly, exactly. We have about two and a half minutes left for this segment. Is there anything else that you'd like to add in terms of this particular step? Yes, so... I I gave this presentation uh, the other day and I had the group talk about, you know, to identify what are the key triggers for them because we all tend to get into patterns. And it was interesting. One of the participants uh, said after they came out of the group situation, you know, we pretty much decided that we're always in survival mode, (laughs) that we're being triggered all the time. And I just thought that was really perceptive of him to realize that, yeah, we are pretty much always in survival mode. And what I'd like to talk about next, I think we'll be talking about, is when you're in survival mode, that's very limiting. And because it means that you, first of all, you're very focused on um, conserving energy, right? The brain loves to conserve energy. Um, so it's not really open to exploring creative ideas. It's certainly not a time to be taking risks, Right? Because already you're surveying the landscape for threats. And so you just don't have access to creative solutions that you would otherwise. It's interesting then that you bring up this awareness point that when you actually 
take a look at your triggers and you look at the landscape of your day and your life experiences, you realize that you're in survival mode mm-hmm. so much of the time. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's a big part of what's leading to our chronic diseases and stress and just general malaise. And since you also work with very accomplished people, it's very interesting to hear this feedback that even someone who is very advanced in their career mm. experiences that as well. I would, yeah, and I would say maybe especially high performers because they just have this relentless drive to prove themselves. And if we don't do it in a way that's healthy, then it's, it's going to be detrimental to our health. Thank you. That's a very enlightening point. We're going to take two for a quick commercial. When we come back, Renita will talk about the second step of mental toughness, exercises you can perform to burn your mental fat, which is the unproductive thinking that puts you in survival mode. Stay with us to learn more. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. Welcome back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, joined by leadership and performance training expert Renita Calhoun. Renita discussed how you can override your biology so you're not ruled by fight-or-flight reactions. Now we're going to delve into how you can burn your mental fat, the unproductive thinking that leads to unnecessary stress, anxiety, and worry. So I'm really curious, Renita, about how you approach helping your clients with this aspect of mental toughness. Mm. Yeah, so here's the here's where the training comes in. So, you know, we talked about these fight or flight triggers and how we can tend to be in a reactive mode. And so, over time, we develop these patterns, these emotional patterns where we react a certain way and it becomes this loop. And there's science now that explains what's actually going on physiologically. So what I'd like to um, explain to clients and, and especially to Navy, the Navy SEAL candidates who, you know, don't really like to talk about emotions per se, I, I, I say that emotions are just a chemical reaction. So when we have a thought, which is in our head, we feel that emotion 
somewhere in our body, maybe in our gut, maybe in our chest. And science shows that that chemical reaction only lasts for 90 seconds in our bloodstream. So we actually have an opportunity to make a choice at that point whether we're going to continue with that thought process or not. And um, I used to tell clients, uh, I still tell the clients this Buddhist quote, which is, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. And we would all kind of nod and say, ah, yeah. But then they would ask me, well, what's the difference between suffering and pain? And so this science helps me explain that difference. Because that 90 seconds, that's the pain, right? Somebody said, no, you're not going to get the promotion. No, we're not going to give you the funding. No, I'm not going to hire you. Whatever that, that pain is of that unwanted result, that's inevitable. That's going to happen. It's not if, it's when. But after that um, pain has happened, we have a choice, we have the, the choice to decide, am I going to continue to think thoughts that feed that pain or am I going to choose a different, redirect my thoughts? Um, and so I've, this is the training because that emotional pattern is so ingrained in us that we might not even realize we're doing it. I'm sure you, you, we've all had the experience of having maybe a, an argument with someone in the morning, 10 o'clock, and we go back to our work, but four o'clock and we're still kind of grinding our teeth and thinking about what they said and what I should have said. And, and we're just going round and round in this emotional loop. So the training comes in when you decide that you are not going to continue that loop. Because basically that means we're always living in the past. All those loops come from our past experience. They're learned, learned patterns. And so for me, the training is about deciding to make a different uh, choice. It's such a very helpful way of framing this experience that I would guess almost anyone can connect with. It seems almost that the pain aspect is an acute experience, even mm -hmm. though there are situations where people unfortunately have chronic pain. Mm -hmm. if, but if we take a look at basically an isolated incident that causes us this kind of discomfort and then the suffering is the residual mm -hmm. impact of this pain, which also seems like there's, of course, there's an element of choice around it. And when I'm saying pain, I'm talking about emotional pain, that resistance to things being a certain way. That's really where all pain comes from. It's I don't like the way things are. I wish they were different. Because as soon as we can get to acceptance, um, th then we feel more in control, we are able to take action, even if we, if we still had a result that we did not want. Right, so it's the reality that we might really feel emotionally charged about, mm -hmm. that this is what we're facing, this is what we have to deal with, and it's not necessarily something that we welcome mm -hmm. having to deal with. Exactly, exactly. Is there an example you can share around this? Well... I, I'll, so I'll share um, an example from my martial arts experience. So I had been training uh, to get my black belt for five years or more. And on the day of the black belt test, uh, at my school, we had to break five boards that are stacked together, taped together. We had to break them with a back kick. And it didn't matter how well you did on the rest of the test, which was about an hour and a half. If you didn't break the boards, then you didn't get your black belt that day. So I stepped up to the boards, 
and I didn't break them. And I tried again and again, and I did not break the boards that day, so I did not get my black belt. And that was extreme pain. The psychological pain of, one, not achieving my goal, also sort of the um, embarrassment of doing it in front of the whole school, also feeling like I had let down my teachers. Just a whole array of psychological pain was associated with that. And um, there were other people in that test who also didn't break the boards, and then they never came back. Right? They just decided they did not want to deal with that psychological pain. So I decided that there was no way I wasn't going to get my black belt after all the training I had done. So I had to go off and practice that, that kick. And in fact, I had to come back four times before I finally broke um, the boards. And so each time I had to go through that cycle of the pain of not breaking the boards and then deciding, okay, I have to accept that I didn't break the boards. Now what can I do? And so that's the phrase that I, I teach to clients and students. It's, it's, okay, it happened. Now what? And that gets you out of the, the judgment zone, I call it, where we're saying something is, is wrong. It's not fair. It shouldn't be this way. And we're just resisting what is which just slows us down from the point where we say, okay, now what? So it seems this is a fabulous illustration that we can get in the way of our own progress mm. by pressing the stop button or the pause button prematurely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's almost the um, driving around in circles. It's going around in circles, wishing that things were different and... Um, you know, when I talk to people who have a very competitive um, bent, I say, this is your competitive edge, your ability to say, okay, it happened, now what? And in fact, if you look at the great entrepreneurs, that's the skill they have. They're able to say, all right, that's not what I wanted, but here we're going to try again. And Elon Musk is a great example of that. Right? Think about how his high-profile failures and all these people who think that what he wants to do isn't possible, and he's able to keep on, on going. So we move from understanding our triggers and designing different choices in how we react to looking at our thinking and ma- making sure that our thinking is as productive as possible, that it's a supported way of looking at things so that you can actually mm-hmm. move forward. Yeah, because that's what I call the mental fat. That, that unnecessary, redundant thinking. So much of that thinking is redundant. We're thinking the same thoughts over and over, and it's not getting us anywhere. It's not serving us in any way. Uh, and in fact, it's actually using up valuable mental energy. So um, I'll, I'll say to a client, you know, is this an investment of your energy or are you just spending energy? Because we only have a certain amount of energy um, you know, during the day, how do you want to be um, using it? Do you want to invest it or do you want to spend it and not get anything back for it? How do you work with someone in a situation like yours where you've invested so much to get to the place where you're at and now you have this challenge that you're facing that somehow you're trying and you haven't been able to work through it? What process do you go through with them I'm thinking about how you responded in that situation. Mm -hmm. You kept coming back Mm -hmm. until you finally were able to do it. And then there were others, and this isn't a judgmental statement. There were others who who decided not to come back. Mm -hmm. How do you work through that dilemma with people? Well, again, I had a very strong why. I really wanted my black belt. 
So that was just underlying. Um, that was the fuel that was underlying. And everything else was just resistance. So if it's a client in that situation, it's helpful to have someone who's not feeling that emotional pain. So I can play that role because I can be very sort of impassive uh, in, or objective and just say, all right, so what are the facts? It's very helpful just to parse out the facts. Because in my case, it was simply I didn't break the boards. That, that was it. There was no shame, nothing to be sh- ashamed about or embarrassed or, or to think there was no reason to think that I couldn't break the boards. So that's the first question. And, and often people bring a lot of emotion into saying this is a fact when um, it was embarrassing is not a fact. That's exactly that's just how I felt. So that would be the first step. What are the facts? You try to look at it from a really more objective and concrete point of view, mm-hmm. as opposed to being only guided by your emotional reaction and having that be the prominent mm-hmm. decision maker. Right. Yeah. Thoughts are not, um, you are not your thoughts. Thoughts are just passing through and, and you can hold on to them or you can let them go. I want to repeat something that you said. You said there was no reason to think that you shouldn't, you wouldn't be able to break the boards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no evidence that I couldn't break the boards. There were people who were much smaller and less strong than than me who had. So um, it was, and and ultimately, um, I don't think I got that much stronger in breaking the boards. It was surely a mental exercise of believing that I could do it. That seems so critical. <laughs> it's very critical for anything. Yeah, I think we can all surprise ourselves if we just decide that we can believe, believe that we can do something. I'm going to pause for a moment there because it's, it's, that's a guiding point. Mm-hmm. That seems like could have been the difference between you moving forward and getting your black belt and then other people who could have done that and didn't. Yeah. And also, I believe I could have done it sooner if I had had more belief in myself. So belief really is the deciding factor. And I think that's where a lot of the training comes in. We have to train ourselves to believe that things are possible. Um, and, And sometimes that means looking at our emotional patterns where we, in the past, or we have certain beliefs about things that are holding us back. Right, especially if maybe it's been a long-term situation where you've been working towards something and you haven't seen the kind of result that you're aspiring to. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So belief is about seeing things that aren't necessarily in your reality. And I think that's the sign of greatness. When you can look at your reality and imagine beyond that. Imagine beyond the fact that you don't have a skill, that you don't have connections, that you don't have the physical reality that you want to create for yourself. And just believe that it's possible. And every great artist, athlete, business person, um, inventor has, has been able to do that. Do you help people go through the paces? Because sometimes you're in a situation where you're not really quite sure what's attainable. It seems that underlying your drive also was just a desire to keep going, you know, get a sense of, you had a sense that you could do it. And at the same time, because in in any experience we have in our lives, we have a reason for doing it. And sometimes though, that's not 
the outcome that emerges. You know, we wind up learning something else that helps to inform our next steps or our direction. And it's not always what you were aiming for that you wind up getting. Ah, absolutely. I think that's key to uh, setting goals. Um, So now when I set a goal, it's not because I really want that end goal. It's what I'll have to do to get to that goal. And sometimes I might change direction on the way to that goal. But it doesn't matter because what I really wanted was the process of moving towards that goal. And I think if we can learn not to get attached to a specific goal, it keeps us, um, first of all, we're more engaged in the process. And then we're less attached to a goal when we decide that's not what we want or it doesn't happen. So it seems like one of the points that you're bringing out is that if you move toward that goal, you'll get the clarity that you need. That Mm -hmm. even if it's around shifting direction, you'll you'll find that out. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So you kind of almost need to work to the point where you have some clarity. Just keep going, right? I mean, it's like driving at night. You know, your headlights just show you a little bit in front of you. You don't need to see the whole path. Right. So that helps us to take the next steps in the direction that we've outlined, mm-hmm. regardless of what the outcomes will be, mm-hmm. until we, we hit that marker that's going to help us either identify a different direction or get to the goal. Exactly. So we have just about a, a minute left in this segment. Is there anything else that you would add around burning mental fat? I think it comes down to making a decision. So for me, it's been how much of my life. So I, I wish we could have a pie chart that showed how much of the time we're spending worrying, how much of the time we're spending in regret. And if you could see that pie chart and that only a small sliver of that pie chart was spent in the present moment, I think it'd be very motivating to spend more time in the present and less time in the past being or future worrying or, or feeling regret. Um, and since I don't have that visible pie chart, I just have made a decision that I am not going to worry, that I'm not going to regret. And I try to be very vigilant about that. That's another then very concrete and deliberate choice that you're making. That although you can work to lessen the worry and lessen the stress or be able to manage the stress better, mm-hmm. maybe not experience the same level of stress in mm-hmm. similar situations, the idea also is to make a choice to be in the moment and be able to really enjoy what's there in the moment without worrying so much. Mm-hmm. Can I add one more thing? Or Sure, we have about... 15 seconds. Okay. So I tell people, whatever you do now, you are going to continue doing that. It doesn't matter if your circumstances change, your same patterns will continue. And that's why the decision is so important. If we want to experience a true change in something, then we have to also decide that that's what we're going to embrace. Mm -hmm. That's what we're going to go for. Yeah. The commitment. Thank you. We're going to go to a brief commercial. When we return, Renita will talk about the third step of developing a mental six-pack, flexing your mental muscles. We'll be back in two. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? 
If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. We're back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi with leadership and performance training expert Renita Calhoun. Renita shared exercises you can do to minimize or eliminate the unproductive thinking that causes worry and stress unnecessarily. The third step of getting a mental six-pack is flexing your mental muscles to be laser-focused and resilient. Mm. Renita, tell us about that. Okay. So now we're aware of how we're being triggered by um, fight-or-flight triggers in our environment and that we're often in survival mode. And we've decided that we don't want to be in survival mode. Um, and so now we have, we can develop, start to develop some of these, um, what I call mental muscles that will really help us take off. So some of the muscles that I, I, I like to uh, focus on are, um, first one is focus. Um, but a really important one is possibility thinking. So when you're in survival mode, you're not in a place to really be thinking creatively, to be thinking about what's possible. And so I call possibility thinking a muscle because it's something that we have to exercise, something that we have to really practice imagining and and being um, creative about. Another muscle is curiosity. Um, Just this ability to look at a situation and assume that maybe we don't know everything. Or, and to actually put aside our assumptions and to be curious. Um, you know, that's what Albert Einstein said. He's just an ordinary guy, but he's just insanely curious. Um, another muscle is courage, the ability to consistently go outside or to expand your comfort zone, to um, resist doing things the same way, to be an autopilot. Uh, and then resilience, that ability to bounce back when things don't go the way you want. Um, and to do it as quickly as possible. So those are the the key muscles that I see, and then all of those together can help you get into a state of flow, which is when you're totally immersed in what you're doing, and that's where peak performance comes from. So you're talking about the ingredients of peak performance and being in that state of flow that feels so good, Mm -hmm. where you really feel that you're embodying this talent or skill you have and you're very much in the moment as you were saying yes 
You're in the moment, and that's when you lose that sense of self-consciousness and of time. And, and that's what keeps us in survival mode when we're so conscious of ourselves as a separate identity, and we're so conscious of how much time we have or how much time something is taking. I would guess, too, it seems as though that's having a, a very strong connection with yourself. Yes. Like you're really plugged in to your life force. Mm-hmm. And then when you're plugged into your life force, it seems as though it's easier to feel connected to other people as, as right. well. So if you take us through this, is there a c- scenario that you can share with us? It could be a common scenario or, or any experience that you've had working with a client where in this particular component, you're looking at building those m- mental muscles and encouraging possibilities, thinking, curiosity, courage, and resilience. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll share some techniques um, for focus because that's where it all starts, this ability to focus. And there are many different ways to focus. And the more you can uh, be agile in the way you focus, the more you'll be able to exercise these other muscles. So there's long-term focus. Um, there's the ability to zoom out and see the bigger picture. And there's something I, I talk about with the SEAL candidates because they go through uh, something called BUDS, which is a very rigorous training. And um, part of that is Hell Week, which is five days where they have maybe four hours of sleep. They're constantly on the move, um, running to meals, doing um, if, if, um boat exercises, carrying boats over their heads, carrying logs, or in cold, cold water, miserable circumstances. And so if you look at the candidates that don't make it through, that ring that bell, and they're done from the seals forever, they're the ones that on Monday they say, oh, I can't do this for another four days, right? They're looking ahead to how long they think they have to do this, and they're, they're psyching themselves out, basically. And that's when they quit, when they say, I can't do this for another three days. The guys that make it through, however, are the ones that are able to narrow their focus, and it's called segmentation. And they're able to say, I only need to make it through breakfast. Okay, I just need to make it through the next evolution. I just need to make it through to lunch. And we've all had those weeks, you know, where we've got flu, we've got family coming in to visit, we've got three deadlines at work, um, and, and things are just overwhelming. And so segmentation is a great way to focus in those times when the pressure is extreme and you're feeling really overwhelmed. And the more you're feeling overwhelmed and under pressure, the smaller the segment should be. It might just be the next 10 minutes. That's fine, because you can only live in the present moment anyway. So segmentation is a great focus technique. And, um, you know, it's one thing just to know that intellectually, but the training comes from actually practicing that under pressure. So in that moment when you're like, I, I feel like giving up, you, f- you figure out what's a segment that I can, I can stay, stay with and practice that. And it's a skill. It's a muscle that you have to train. Um, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a very valuable strategy when you're, when you're in a moment that feels particularly difficult for you. And sometimes it could, you could be at a celebration and there's some issues in that that are hard, some mm-hmm. dynamics. Maybe someone you're in love with is marrying someone else. Mm. 
And you're just really encouraging yourself to just be present, like you're saying, your main focus, your main job in that moment is just to be there. Yeah. And that is training to say, all right, I'm going to focus on this, to decide where you're going to focus and keep your focus there. So there's two parts to it. And that keeping your focus there, that's the part where we (laughs) um, are a little bit lazy sometimes. We tend to be easily distracted. So it seems it's almost like you're creating this soup. And if you don't have these combination of things, then the soup just doesn't taste <laughs> right the way that you'd like it to. Because you were bringing, you, you brought up so many points. And it seems as though the key is really to combine all of those different points. That you're starting out with the goal setting foundation. You're taking a look at what your triggers are in any situation and also what other people's key triggers are so you can choose a different reaction. Mm-hmm. You're looking at how you're thinking, mm-hmm. how productive is your thinking, what you're holding on to that's not really working well. And a lot of this you can prepare. You can, if you know you're going into a stressful situation, you can start to anticipate what those triggers might be and what you will focus on in the moment. Don't try and wait until the moment when you're uh, sort of in a panic or in a fog and then try to come up with a solution. So the idea is preparation. Mm -hmm. And you used the word vigilance Mm -hmm. when we were having our conversation during the commercial that you really need to make a decision about what you value, what's really important to you, what your goals are, and stick to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Vigilance, because it's not going to be natural autopilot is going to kick in. Your ego is going to kick in and want you to do things the same way you've always done them. So you talked about this type of focus where you could be zooming out to look at the big picture and then another kind of focus that serves people really well, especially when they're in challenging situations and they're wondering how long can I sustain Mm -hmm. myself in this situation and they might drop out as a result of that. So really seg- segmenting your focus mm-hmm. in whichever way you need to, if it's five minutes, if it's 10 minutes. Yes. And there's another way to um, manage your focus, which is uh, by setting micro goals. So we live in a society where we like things to be dramatic and big. You know, we have the big loser. We have the big everything. And if you set a big goal... And it's going, it might take a long time before you're actually achieving that goal. So it's really important to set micro goals. And there's a scientific reason for that. Because every time we, we achieve something or complete something, there's a hormone, a feel-good hormone that's released in our brain that um, makes us feel confident. It helps us relax and feel confident and more likely to continue doing something. That's why it's so satisfying to cross something off your to-do list. So use that science to set micro goals so that on the way to a larger goal, you have this constant stream of completing things, of doing things. Um, And uh, I mentioned this in one of my workshops and one of the mothers in the uh, in the workshop said, uh, oh, my toddler, like he, he, whenever he completes something, he says, I did it mm-hmm. or I'm done. And so kids know this, right? They, they get very excited when they finish something. And so that would really serve us adults to do the same sort of thing. Just set very tiny goals or micro goals if you don't like the, the idea of tiny and can create this 
um, stream, I guess we'll call it, of just feeling like you're accomplishing things, which builds momentum. It seems like a very efficient process because if there are any issues and you're doubting the direction that you're taking and the commitment, then at least you can catch that hopefully earlier on. Mm -hmm. And you can always set some goal that you can achieve right now. I love what you're saying, especially if it's a long-term goal, you know, feeling that satisfaction and that experience that you're making progress. Mm -hmm. Doing the micro goals, you're really able to do that along the way. And very importantly, as you're mentioning, you accomplish it. And at the same time, you reflect back to yourself and you give yourself credit for the fact that you accomplished it. Yeah. I think we're most motivated. And in fact, research shows this. Teresa Mobile has done some wonderful research around um, how progress is the most motivating factor for us. And so if we can just see that we're making progress, we are going to be motivated to continue. It gives yourself validation. And then also we're in a world where having being able to share with other people what your accomplishments are, what you've achieved around something mm-hmm. is really important too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes in our society we focus too much on these huge goals and uh, people don't give themselves enough credit for all, all the steps they took to get to those goals. We have these really st- valuable strategies that you shared around focus mm-hmm. and also setting micro goals. Is there anything else that you would add for this particular step? Another muscle, I'll just say briefly, another muscle that I think is really important um, I would say a fundamental muscle is curiosity. I think um, when we get into autopilot, we just start to assume uh, things all the time. We, I've heard people say, oh, I know what she's thinking, or I know what he's going to do, or I know you better than you know yourself. And when we do that, we, we box ourselves in. We, we don't open ourselves up to what's possible, to creating a different outcome than we're used to. And so curiosity can put us in a place where we might be in the situation that we've been in hundreds of times and we could create a different result. If only we're in a place of, oh, I wonder uh, if I did this, what would happen? Or I wonder why she said that. I love this point that you're making. Just yesterday, I was joking with my husband that it would be wonderful if we could each of us create a reset button. Uh-huh. And so... I say today I'm hitting my reset button. Yes. And so if I'm having a conversation with someone and my past conversations with that person have been a little bit tricky, I'm going to just hit that reset button as if I'm meeting them for the first time. That's wonderful. If we could all do that. Again, that's the training, isn't it? Because it doesn't come naturally. Our autopilot kicks in. But amazing, amazing results can come when we decide that we don't have to know everything. What about resilience? Is there anything you'd add about that? So the resilience goes back to that pain and the suffering. So when you can stick to the facts, when you can get out of the judgment zone and get into action, strategic action, um, not action just for action's sake, but strategic action, that's going to, you're going to naturally be resilient because you're going to be looking for um, solutions that will take you to um, the next step. Yeah. It ties into the points that you were making really about preparation mm-hmm. and giving yourself a framework that also offers a sense of structure and security and support. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, resilience is something you can train, prepare for, for situations that are performance-oriented, but also over the long term, just, um, you know, we have an emotional bank, so you want to fill that bank with gratitude, with excitement, with joy, with love, because if you're constantly taking out withdrawals with stress and anxiety and regret and not making deposits, then that bank is going to empty pretty quickly. We're going to consider ourselves then working toward making deposits in a positive way and really deciding, in addition to using these wonderful techniques that you shared, deciding to minimize the stress and the worry in in any one moment of time. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Renita. This has been an invaluable learning experience. Thanks, Amanda, for having me. You've given us exercises through which we can be the large beings we inherently have the capacity Mm -hmm. to become. And in a world where we can function closer to the top of our game, we'll have so much more to teach one another. I'd like to invite you to step even further into building your mental six-pack by listening to Renita's Mental Toughness for Mavericks podcast through iTunes. Find out more about her coaching and training services at stepupyourgamenow.com. If you have unanswered questions from today's episodes, please email them to me at hosthemda at gmail.com. We'll post responses via social media sites, which you can access by following me on Twitter at Hemda Mizrahi and liking us on Facebook at Turn the Page Radio. Until next week, remember to make the grass greener where you are. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, inviting you to turn the page. Thank you for tuning in to our program. Turn the Page can be heard live every Friday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week's show, enjoy your weekend and make one change in your life before then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.